Well, thank you, James, for your testimony. It is uh, a profound biblical truth that suffering purifies our hearts and grants us the grace to draw near to Him. And suffering is indeed a gift. And we're glad that we're suffering together. Hope that we'll suffer for many years together. Um, and today is a special Lord's Day with communion uh, during our second hour. Everything we do on the Lord's Day goes back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament times, they sang songs to praise, to praise God. The book of Psalms is an example of that. They gathered together to pray. They read the scriptures. Some would actually get behind a pulpit, someone like this, and pre- preach a message based upon the word of God. And they would gather together uh, and fellowship. Two practices of the church originated distinctly in the New Testament. And as a church, we have a high view of these two practices. Believer's baptism and also believer's communion. Uh, we believe that baptism is for believers. It's an ex- external expression of an inward condition. When a person is truly saved, then we administer baptism where they are entered publicly into Christ and into his church. Secondly as well, communion is for believers. And so, for our communion service, if you are a visitor visiting us for the first time, or you've been with us before but never sat in communion, we ask you to talk to uh, members of our welcoming ministry. They'll be to, our, to my right after service and talk to them if you desire to join us for our communion service. Well, many years ago, while I was in high school, I had a summer job. I worked at a Unocal 76 gas station pumping gas and inflating tires and cleaning windows and made like 3.35 an hour. Still somewhat bitter to this day about the slave wages I earned, but I was happy at that time. Well, one day a guy came in selling uh, brand new Omega watches. And, you know, I'd, I'd heard of them before, and I knew that Omega watches were somewhat expensive. And I, and I told him, well, where did he get these from? And he said he was part of a watch store. They were liquidating their inventory, and they were selling them at rock-bottom prices. And I asked how much. He said, $10 each. <laughs> like, I'll take two. <laughs> one for myself, and one for my grandfather. Well, a few days later, the backside of that watch began to turn green. And I <laughs> took it outside, and I put it under the light, and I read the lettering, and it didn't say Omega. It said O-M-E-C-A. Omega. It wasn't real. It was counterfeit. And I was robbed. I think my grandfather figured it out too, but he was so gracious he didn't have the heart to tell me. I was hoping he, didn't, he wouldn't notice, but the watch turns green. How can you hide that? <coughs> Several years later, uh, my college years, I went to Korea, and I bought myself brand new black Air Jordans. I came back and got a bunch of uh, church guys to play ball. I brought out my brand new Air Jordans out. I laced them up in front of them with my Air Jordan shorts and my Air Jordan tank tops. That's all a joke, right? But Air Jordan shoes, right? Well, we started playing ball. I made this one quick crossover move. And then something started flying across the court. We all stopped playing to pick this thing up. I think Rex might have been there. I think Billy was definitely there. And we picked this up and... It was the bottom sole of my brand new Air Jordans. And I looked at the sole carefully. And you know that logo with Jordan leaping and dunking? I realized, examining it carefully, that it was a counterfeit because the head was all lopsided. I didn't realize it until I looked at it carefully. Well, it got me again. It was a counterfeit. Well, five years ago on our honeymoon, we're down in Mexico <laughs> shopping. And I was in our, we were in our honeymoon, and I didn't have any sunglasses, or I was scoping out for sunglasses. And this guy was selling brand new pair of Oakleys, right? Oakley sunglasses for $10. I asked him, are they real? And he said, yes, they're genuine Oakleys. I was like, come on, man. You know, <laughs> I've been had before. I won't be had again. I knew they were fake. I lowballed them for $3 and I got two pairs. <laughs> well, you know, we don't have this kind of issues in the States, right? When we go shopping, 
you know, buying products, you, you get what you pay for, you know that they're genuine products, but elsewhere, <coughs> this is a major issue. Consumers, whenever they go overseas, are taught to carefully examine all their purchases because counterfeit products abound. And every year they tell us that they are getting better and better at imitating the real thing to the point where even the experts are deceived. They can't tell whether a particular software even is really made by the manufacturers with a counterfeit. Well, the same thing is happening in the church. Same thing, but in a, in a lot, in a <clears throat> lot grander scale. The product that is counterfeited in the church has far greater and harmful consequences, and I believe it is by far, practically, the greatest question, the greatest issue facing the church today. The health and vitality of the church depends on it. The power of our Christian witness before the world depends on our ability to address this question in the church, and it is the question of just who is a genuine Christian? How can one determine whether a person is a genuine Christian as opposed to a counterfeit Christian? How can we tell? That question is, is made more difficult because the line between the church and the world has become so blurred. It's becoming harder and harder to answer. <clears throat> the church today is so compromised. Christians are so worldly because believers act so much like unbelievers that it is becoming near impossible to determine just who is an authentic Christian. Now, people, ask, people have asked me why I so often speak on this matter of salvation, why I so often speak about this issue of genuine Christianity as opposed to false Christianity. And I never thought of it. I never thought, yeah, you know what, looking at my sermon catalog, I, I have spoken on this numerous times. And because I was asked, I thought of the reasons why I addressed this issue again and again and again. And I thought of three reasons why I addressed this issue. First of all, practically, for each individual, this is the most important issue in our lives. For you and for me. If you are not a genuine Christian, then nothing else matters. Nothing else. The issue of spiritual gifts, of role of men and women, God's design for marriage, evangelism, biblical finances, so on and so on. Who cares? If you're not a Christian and you're headed towards eternal punishment in hell... What does dispensationalism and covenant theology matter to you and I? So for all intents and purposes, this is a jugular issue, eternal destiny of men. That is why I believe, maybe, I emphasize so much. Because if you're a Christian, everything follows. If not, then nothing else matters. Secondly, the Bible emphasizes this issue over and over again. The Bible is replete on warnings against people concerning the nature of self-deception. Self Matthew 7, our Lord prophesied that many will say to the Lord on that day, this will actually happen. This is a prediction, a prophecy. And that day will come. Many will come to Christ and they will say, Curios, curios, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons, work signs and wonders, do all kinds of work service unto you? And Christ will say, Urga, never have I known you. You and I have never had a master-servant, Christ-follower relationship. I never knew you. Away from me, workers of iniquity. And that prophecy is a warning to all professing Christians, a warning to the church to take heed concerning one's own position before God. John chapter 2, 23 and 24. Here John, the apostle, by his commentary on the life of Christ, by his aside comment, declares in chapter 2 that there is such a thing as inauthentic faith. John 2, 23. While our Lord was in Jerusalem at Passover, many people saw the miraculous signs that he was performing and they believed in his name. But John says, 
<coughs> but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Even though they believed in him, they externally professed loyalty, faith in Christ. Christ did not reciprocate that faith. Why? Because he knew all men. He knew their faith was disingenuous. This goes along to Paul. 2 Corinthians 13.5 where Paul concludes his lengthy letter writing back and forth. I think four letters are written by Paul. And he concludes this letter writing back and forth in chapter 13.5 by saying, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Unless, of course, you fail the test. He says, all that I've said is contingent upon this issue. Are you guys true Christians? Are you guys true believers? If you fail the test, to trust in Christ today. And so, because that is the emphasis of the Bible, and as we expositionally study through the Bible, I hope and pray that the content of our preaching reflects the Bible's content. Right? That the reason we emphasize that in the pulpit is only because that's the emphasis of the Scriptures. That is my prayer. That what I'm emphasizing is the emphasis of the Scriptures. As we study passage by passage, week after week. And the third reason I suppose I talk about this genuine and counterfeit faith is, this is one of my main duties as a pastor. This is one of my main responsibilities as a pastor of the flock of God. You know, as a full-time pastor, I have many responsibilities. I am called to teach the Bible, to pray for the saints, to lead the church, to give counsel and encourage the saints, to overall shepherd the flock of God. But through it all, one of my most central pastoral duties that has belonged to pastors ever since the New Testament times has been this matter of helping people see clearly their own spiritual state. That was Paul's main task. That was what Paul called Timothy to do. All the pastors throughout church history, to this day, one of our main functions is to help people understand with clarity where they stand before a holy God. One of my core responsibilities. That is why we address this issue again and again. And it is also, as I said, the pressing issue for the church today. Just who is a real Christian? It is so difficult today. The church is so marginalized and compromised. At the same time, so many in the world profess to be Christians. The latest poll, 2003, discovered that 76% of people in this country profess to be Christians. I was blown away. 1% decrease ever since like 84. Or 89, actually, 89 but currently, 76% of Americans claim to be followers of Christ. Well, how do we know? What are the criteria that we can use to determine whether, person, whether you, I am, a Christian or not? <clears throat> Today's passage gives us much-needed light. Today's passage, if you're wrestling with this question, I believe this, today's, today's passage has many answers for you. It'll shed great light. It'll help you to understand this issue with, with much clarity. I titled today's sermon, Three Definitive Qualities of a True Christian. I believe this passage for everyone here will either comfort you or confront you. It will either restore you or rebuke you. It will either expose your lack of faith or edify your existing faith. In the economy of verses 31 through 36... For today, 31 through 36, we see three characteristics that our Lord promises that will be present in every true disciple of Jesus Christ. Three characteristics that will be present in every believer. It's a promise of Christ. Well, let's go to the text. Again, we've been uh, here historically for many, many weeks. This is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Our Lord is dialoguing with the Pharisees. It's a heated confrontation. It's a pitched battle. 
And verse 30, there seems to be a breakthrough. There seems, lines seems to have broken through and Christ has broken through the lines. Because verse 30 tells us, John tells us, that many, as our Lord was saying these things, many came to believe in Him. So from verse 30, if you end there, there's a sign of hope. What is our Lord's response? Verse 31, therefore, that's so important. <coughs> so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him. So here, from this point on, our Lord is directing His, his, his um, teachings to the people who believed in Him. He's addressing those who believe in Him, and yet, they do not believe. It is apparent from the rest of the verses that they believed intellectually in the claims of Christ. They agreed with His claims and statements. They comprehended and assented to His teachings, but they were neither prepared nor willing to follow Christ. Their intentions were not to obey. Their hard cry was not to submit and follow, nor abide in the words of Christ. Is, can, you, can we understand that? That you, someone claims, professes faith in Christ, external allegiance to Christ, but in their hearts, no desire to obey, no effort to abide in the words of Christ. You consider someone like that, and you have to say, he or she is in the most dangerous spiritual state. That's the most dangerous place to be in spiritually. When one's heart is so calloused, that before Christ, who is omniscient, they make professions of faith, and in their heart of hearts, there is nothing, no desire, to obey His words. For someone to recognize that Jesus is the truth and yet does nothing about it means that in effect, he or she has aligned himself or herself secretly, covertly with the enemy. Well, in verse 31, our Lord addresses them and He gives them the first quality of a true Christian, of a true disciple. If you abide in My words... Note that it is a conditional clause. It's a major condition, is it not? If you abide, New, New International Version paraphrases it and, and has it hold to my teachings. The lexicon Beasley Murray declares that the word abide signifies a settled determination to live in the word of Christ. To live by the word of Christ which entails a perpetual listening to it, reflection on it, holding fast to it, carrying out its bidding, end quote. To summarize, abiding means, to, means a willingness to do whatever it takes to obey the Word of God. It means another way of obedience, another way of submission, but, uh, but it also signifies a prolonged obedience, Right? A continuation. It is not a point in time. It is not an event like believe. But it connotes a duration, an enduring obedience. A prolonged, persevering obedience. Our Lord is saying to them, it is easy to superficially believe in Him. But the test, but the test that... that test of whether that faith is true or not is whether one abides in His Word. The central mark of a genuine Christian is whether the one continues to abide in the words of Christ. Now, important to note, it is not a condition of discipleship. It is not you believe that you've got to obey for three and a half months then you're a Christian. It is not, there's some arbitrary length where, okay, you need to obey for six months or a year or four years. No, it's not a condition of discipleship. It is a manifestation of discipleship. It is an evidence of it. It reveals what is in the heart. When a person continues to, present tense, obey the Word of God. This is one, I believe, this is the clearest test. 
We have many tasks given to us by many sources in the scriptures, from 1 John, 2 Corinthians, and so forth. And this is the clearest one. Is there endurance and obedience to Christ? John 14, 21, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, present tense, is the one who loves me. About Colossians 1, 22 and 23, Colossians 1, 22 and 23, <coughs> Paul says how Christ reconciled in his body of flesh, reconciled us to himself. Verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul is saying, your faith is genuine if you continue. 1 Corinthians 15.1 Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. This is the gospel that has saved you, that you are standing firm in, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. If you hold fast. Otherwise, Paul says, you believe in vain. If you're not holding fast, if you're not enduring, continuing, you have believed in vain for naught. These words of Christ in John 8.31 supply us with a sure test that it is not how a man begins the Christian race. It is not how loud he is or how fast he spurts in the beginning. How much noise he, noise he makes or how... How much attention he gets. No, it is how he finishes the race. How he continues and ends. And then he says in verse 31b, Then you are truly my disciples. Truly my disciples. The word truly signifies genuine. Genuine and true. One more thing. It is quite significant that in verse 31, our Lord does not say that you will be my disciples. He doesn't say that in a future tense. He says that, but you are my disciples if you hold to my teachings, if you abide in my teachings. Again, telling us again that our Lord is not laying down a condition of discipleship. He is telling us, telling them what discipleship means. A disciple is one who believes and therefore obeys and continues to obey the teachings of Christ first quality of a genuine Christian. Starting in verse 32, our Lord moves into the future. The true disciple who manifests this first quality of abiding in the words of Christ will furthermore manifest two more qualities and these are future tense. If anyone abides in the words of Christ, they will know the truth. And will be set free by that truth. If you've been studying through this passage with us, reading through the Gospel of John, if you've been meditating on this section, you would have noticed that truth is a key theme of this section of Scripture. From verses 32 through, 30, 32 through 58, the word truth is stated nine times. Twice in verse 32. Verse 34, I tell you the truth. Verse 40, I have told you the truth that I heard from God. Verse 44, you are not holding to the truth. Verse 45, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Verse 46, can anyone prove me guilty of sin? I am telling the truth. Verse 51, I am telling you the truth. Verse 58, I tell you the truth. A key theme, a major theme of this section, the importance of truth, how Christ is telling them the truth, and that verse 32, that this is the second quality of a true Christian, that the believer, the disciple, will know the truth, will know the truth. Now, what does this mean? There are two Greek words for know. I don't want to get all scholarly on you, but I can't, so, you know, I'm not... (laughs) doing anything too quick that's all I know about Greek these two words gnosko and oida two Greek words gnosko and oida Vine's dictionary says gnosko implies an active relationship between the one who knows and the person known oida expresses 
simple knowledge, simple understanding. Thus, in 7.23, these men come to Christ, men and women, and they say, Lord, Lord. And our Lord says, I never conosced you. Right, I added the English past tense, but I never conosced you. Our Lord's not saying, I'm not omniscient, I don't know who you are. Of course He knows. He oidas all of them. He knows all of them. He's omniscient. But when He says, Gnosko, what He's saying is, I never had a relationship with you. Right? The simplest way I can put it is, someone asks me, Hey, James, do you know, you know, Minhan? Do you know Mike Kostura? Do you know Gary Kim? Yeah, I know these guys. I have a relationship with these guys. They say, Hey, James, do you know Colin Powell? Well, I know of him. But I don't, I don't know him, right? That's how we use gnosko and oida in English. Well, that's what Christ is saying. If you abide in my words, you will have gnosko with the truth. You will have a re- living relationship with it. You, you will not just know truth. You have a relationship with the truth. Now, how does that happen? How do you have a relationship with truth? That doesn't make sense to us. Well, remember, what did Pilate ask? He said, what is truth? Wrong question. The question is, who is truth? Who is truth? Jesus, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. That's what our Lord is saying. If anyone abides in my words, he will have a relationship with him. Jesus Christ, the living word. That is how one has a relationship with Christ. Through the Word of God, by abiding in His teachings, a believer has a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is a second mark, second quality of a true Christian. I think popular Christianity has it all wrong. This mystical idea of this relationship with Jesus Christ. This hyper-spiritual union where Jesus and I, He walks with me, He talks with me, He's my friend, I have a relationship with Him, this touchy-feely relationship. Like Jesus is my boyfriend kind of idea, or for guys, Jesus is my big brother, or my co- my pilot, or my coach. No, that's a misunderstanding of this theological truth. We're imposing our mystical, psychological biases into the Word of God. Relationship with Christ is through His Word. Period. It is not apart from the Word of God. It is not some... Again, I'm overusing that word, like some mystical, spiritual, internal connecting with Christ. There's no such thing in the Bible. Relationship with Christ is through His revealed scriptures. How do we have a relationship with the truth, with the Word of God? By meditating on the Word of God. By studying it. By obeying His words. That is how we come to a relationship with Him. That is how we come to know Him. 1 John 2, 3. We know that we have come to know Him, Gnosko, if we obey His commands. What is John saying? We know we have a relationship with Christ. How? If we obey His words. That's how you know if you have a relationship with Christ or not. If you're not obeying His words, no matter what you're feeling, your hair's on your back, gut feeling, warm, warm and fuzzies, it matters not. If you're not living in obedience, you do not have a relationship with Christ. Again, obedience is not the condition of discipleship. It is the proof of discipleship. Any claim of a relationship with Jesus Christ without the Word of God is a false claim. Furthermore, this verb, gnosko, is in the middle voice. It's in the middle voice. Meaning, he himself will know the truth. He will act upon himself, and he will have a relationship himself with, the, with, the, with Jesus Christ. It tells us that this relationship is a personal relationship. It is an individual relationship. It is not through a denomination. It's not through a church. It's not through a priest or a pastor. It's not vicarious through a religious system. It will be an intimate and deeply personal relationship. You know, I know, I know this firsthand. When I first came to the States, the first six years of my, of my life, I didn't know my parents. I was raised by my grandparents. I didn't have a relationship with my own parents. I knew of them vicariously through my grandparents, through my relatives, through pictures and stories. 
but I didn't have a personal relationship with them. When my dad came to us, he was my dad in position only. He was a stranger. When we landed in LAX, my dad sent me ahead to find my mom. The strange woman hugged me and cried. She was my mom in position, but not in relationship. My relationship with her was vicarious through other means. It was not a personal relationship. I myself did not know my own mom and dad. But over time, as they cared for me, as they took care of me, as they bought me toys... Right? especially bought me toys, then I began to love them and care for them and know them personally. This is the kind of relationship that our Lord is promising to all those who abide in His teachings. That they will have a relationship, a personal knowledge, relationship with Him, an intimate knowledge with Christ. Let me just pause here for a second and ask you just a question. Do you today have a relationship with Christ through His teachings? Through the Word of God? Are you abiding in the Word of God today? You know, is your relationship with Christ vicarious through the church? Is it through our Philippians Bible study? Is it through FOF or sermon tapes or KKLA, you know, listening to sermons or reading Christian books? then you know, you're not having a relationship with Christ. You're knowing of Him through others. Are you today in the Word, studying the Word of God, obeying it, and following through on that obedience? Are you today abiding in the words of Christ? Do you have the heart, I'll do whatever it takes to obey God's Word? Or what occupies your heart is not the concerns of this world. It's not wealth. It's not health. It's not stock market, savings, vacations, bills. What you're most concerned about is this relationship with Christ. Abiding in the Word. This personal knowledge of our Savior and Lord. Do you have that? All of us have it vicariously to the church. But that, that's not what Christ called us to. Well, let's move on to the third quality of a, Christ, of a true Christian. Verse 32. And the truth shall set you free. Man, I love that. I mean, that's, that's just awesome. The way Christ um, presents word pictures. Now, again, this is all in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. And he is, the context is the Old Testament. Christ is not resurrected yet. And all his previous references was to the Exodus, escape from Israel, from the bondage, of, escape from Egypt, from, the, from, their, from their bondage. He talked about the bread, the manna from heaven. He talked about the living water, the rock that was given. Right? Now he goes back to the origin, origin of the Exodus. How Moses set them from the physical bondage of slavery. He's saying, I have come to release you, to set you free. Not from the bondage of Rome, not from the bondage of an evil government or or captivity, but to set you free, set us free from sin and death. William Hendrickson says in this verse, this is the most remarkable saying uttered by our Lord. It is one of those few sayings that is so precious that it has transcended Christianity. This has entered the common consciousness of even the secular world, this idea of truth, setting people free. Why? Because freedom is a universal pursuit. Remember Patrick Henry? Before the revolution, he said, Is life so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery, forbid it. Almighty God, I care not what course others may take, but as for me, and we all know this, give me liberty or give me death. Pursuit of liberty is so cherished that he would rather have that or death. And what about William Wallace, right? Last cry before he died. What was it? It wasn't his wife's name, right? It was freedom, right? wanted freedom. Everyone wants freedom. 
Freedom from what? It is not political oppression. It is not from the law. It is not from religion. It is not from bad habits or personal hang-ups. It is freedom from sin. They understood it wrongly. Verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. House that you say will become free. Verse 34, truly I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin, telling us that it is not physical slavery, but a spiritual slavery that Christ sets us free from. And we find four truths from this one verse. Truth number one, all men are slaves to sin. This is the truth. Whether you believe it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, whatever your experience, this is the truth. Because Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, emphasizing the truthfulness of this statement, that all men are slaves to sin. Truth number two, sin has a universal power. Meaning Jews and Gentiles alike, rich or poor. Educated, uneducated, men or women, old and young, are captive to sin. Acts 8.18 and 23, when Simon the sorcerer saw the Spirit of God working through the apostles' hands, he offered them money to purchase this power. And Apostle Paul said to him, I see that you are full of bitterness and you are captive to sin. 2 Peter 2.19, talking about these false teachers, Peter says, they promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. They're promising freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin. Sin has universal power. Sin enslaves every participant. Everyone who commits a sin automatically at that instant is a slave to that sin. No one is immune from the corrupting and binding power of sin. Proverbs 5.22 says, The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold fast to him. Third truth is that sin is a cruel master. Sin is a cruel master. You know, slavery is cruel, period. When we think of slavery, we think of no freedom. We think of punishment, bondage, oppression, no free will, no joy, no happiness. You have to do whatever the master tells you. Slavery in itself is cruel. But sin, slavery to sin is most cruel because sin is the most cruel master. There is no slavery like this in all the world, in all of human history. Sin is indeed the hardest, cruelest, cruelest of all masters. You know what, this, what sin pays you after your labor? You, you suffer and you serve sin all your life. You know what sin gives to you during life? Sin gives you misery and disappointment. At the end of your service, you know what the retirement package for sin is? Death and hell. The cruelest of all masters. Fourthly, sin is an internal master. It's an internal master. This is why it's so deceptive. There are no outward chains. There are no prison bars. There are no walls to scale. There are no external brandings marking you as a slave. All men are prisoners within. You know, I read this transcript of Diane Sawyer's interview with Whitney Houston several weeks ago. I don't know, some of you guys may have seen it, recorded it, watching it again. But, I mean, in the 80s I grew up and she was like, I don't know, she was very big. Not so big now, but. But also, I was very saddened and moved by her honesty. Apparently, this very popular singer and actress has many drug addictions and people have feared for her life. Diane Sawyer asked her, do you think of yourself as an addict? Whitney Houston replied, I don't, think, I don't like to think of myself addicted. I like to think of that I have a bad habit. Sawyer says, is it alcohol? Is it marijuana? Is it cocaine? Is it pills? Her response, it has been at times. Diane Sawyer's all? At times. Diane Sawyer asked, if you had to name the devil for you, the biggest devil among them, what would it be? Her response, that would be me. It is my deciding. It is my heart. It's what I want and what I don't want. 
Nobody makes me do anything I don't want to do. It's my decision. So the biggest devil is me. And that's how I have to deal with it. End quote. Here is this world famous singer, uniquely talented, has everything she wants and needs, but she is not content, she is not satisfied. And she has rightly identified the source of her self-destructive behavior. Quote, it is my deciding. It is my heart. The biggest devil is me. This is the experience of all who are outside of Christ. They're enslaved. But it's an internal slavery. Slavery of their sinful hearts. Titus 3.3, Paul says, we were all that way once. Every Christian, we were, we have, we've all been deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, Titus 3.3. 3. We also were under the influence of all kinds of passions and pleasures. We were its slaves. Our passions ruled our lives, ruled our decisions. We were enslaved by our own appetites. Men falsely think that freedom is the ability to do whatever we want. No, freedom is not freedom to sin. The freedom that Christ promises, the third mark of a believer, is freedom from sin. Is that a reality for you? Have you been set free from sin? Christ promises this. We can't say he's a liar or he's unfaithful to his word. Christ promises to all those who abide in him, he will set them free. Now, it doesn't mean perfection. Sin is still in our flesh. But it means, is your life dominated by sin? With moments of righteousness? Or is your life dominated by righteousness? Dominated by freedom? With moments of slavery. Oh, verse 35. Our Lord says, no one else can set you free. They're waiting for Moses. You know, Moses was great. He was an awesome guy. He said, your ancestors free from Egypt. What a power Egypt was, but Moses was great. But you know what? This is too great even for Moses. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. If the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. It's talking about rights. A slave has no right to set another slave free. Because he's a slave as well. Moses gave the law, but he was a slave to his own law. Moses was still a sinner. He was a slave to sin. He had no authority. He had authority to rescue Israel from Egypt, but not from... not. Release man from sin. Only the Son, only Jesus Christ from the Father has the right and authority to release man from sin. And when Christ does that, that man is forever free. It is irrevocable. Romans 11.29, God's gifts and His calls are irrevocable. They cannot be called back. If God's Son sets a man free, He is free indeed. Well, final thoughts for us today. Just maybe a few final thoughts. Again, are you today continuing your obedience to the words of Christ? How are you guys doing? Are you persevering? Are you enduring in your commitment to Christ? And we all fail. We all fall, fall short. We all sin. The issue is, are you persevering? I love what, you know, Jonathan Edwards had these personal resolutions in his diary. Things that he had committed himself to do. And I love his resolution 56. I love this. Note this, brothers and sisters. Resolved never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. I don't care how unsuccessful I am in combating sin. I don't care if I fail every hour. I'm going to endure. I'm going to fight. I'm not going to slacken in my fight against my corruptions. Second of all, secondly, reminder, do you have a personal and living relationship with Jesus Christ through His Word, through the Bible? 
mean, just today, are you in the Word? Are you studying? Are you meditating and obeying the Scriptures? Right? Everyone here knows of Christ. Who here knows Christ and is known by Him? What does that look like, relationship with Christ? It means a man or woman privately studies the Bible, not for ministry, right? not for Bible study, not in the church. They personally study the Bible for their own nourishment, to have a relationship with Christ. And they privately obey. They personally obey the words of Christ. And then they share with others. And then they, they teach others. Is that your experience today? And a final ex- exhortation to the saints would be, knowing as believers how sin enslaves everyone who commits sin. It is true in the macro sense, universally. It is also true micro in the micro sense, individual sin. Flee from temptation. Flee from sin. Do we realize that with every sin, sin's intent is to enslave you? The capacity for addiction knows no limits in the heart of man. The capacity for addiction. I don't understand some Christians' cavalier attitude towards their Christian life. As if they have this power over sin. It ought to be the opposite. Sin is to be treated like a deadly animal. A poisonous, venomous snake. Ought to kill you. It has that power. Our only appropriate response towards sin and temptation is to flee. Is to be a fugitive, run away. You know, how many alcoholics began with one drink? How many lives have been ruined? Families been ravaged because of that one drink that enslaved that person to a lifetime of bondage to alcohol. How many alcoholics, after 20 years, enslaved in that sin, hate the man who bought them their first drink? Hate the man who poured that first drink? Hate the man who sat next to him, idly sat by, and saw him enter into a lifetime of slavery. Do we see that capacity? Do we fear that capacity with every sin in our lives? Not being legalistic, but just spiritually, alcohol, cigarettes, unwholesome music, impure images on television, Pornography, gambling. We need to flee away from such things. I mean, that's how we're, as we raise Elizabeth, I don't want us to see a single commercial. I don't want her to hear a bad word. I don't want her to hear or see impure images. Why? Not to separate her as like some kind of monkish lifestyle. No, I don't want her to. Ha- to grow with such sin in our heart. As she grows older and older, I don't want that seed being embedded into the young heart where she's an adult and that small slavery dominates her life. Shouldn't we have such concern of our own souls? Knowing that sin has only one aim, to enslave us again to its chains? John Owen wrote, Christians must not try to coexist with sin, but should remove it completely. Christians must be always at the task of mortifying sin, because sin perpetually stalks him. This is a duty he cannot rest from until he rests in glory. You give sin an inch, it will take a mile. If it can gain a footing in a Christian's life, it will send forth its roots and grow like weeds. It will use them and abuse them and inflict as much disaster as possible. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief, if it could, would be atheism. It proceeds towards its height by degrees, making the, making the good ground hard. Nothing can prevent this but mortification and initial avoidance. 
do we see the power, the corrupting power of sin. I exhort you, saints, knowing Christ that everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Macro, also micro. Everyone who commits a sin has started the road, on the road to a slavery to that particular sin. Flee. Run away from temptation. Run away from sin. For we've been set free. Don't be like the Israelites. Let's go back to Egypt. All the garlic, all the food, the leeks, the onions. And forget the oppressive nature of slavery. Do we forget what a cruel master sin is? Why do we want to go back when Christ has set us free? Well, Lord, I speak as one who understands this maxim that it is easier to chide at sins of others than to deal with one's own sin in, my, in one's heart. Lord, I know I am not worthy to give this message, for I am but a sinner, um, striving, resolving to fight against sin, even though I'm unsuccessful. Lord, May we all find ourselves in the same platform as sinners set free by the Lamb, all needing the grace to continue in our freedom, freedom given to us that we might live for You. Lord, cause us a holy hatred and a holy fear of sin and temptation. That sin seeks only to ruin us, prowls around like a roaring lion, ready to devour us, Cause us, Lord, to be humble before your truths. Flee from sin and to pursue your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.